This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. We normally do a media roundtable around the start of the year in Asia where we put out our predictions um, for the forthcoming year around you know, forensic issues, be it fraud, corruption, e-discovery, disputes. And we've historically done that in person to a, a media roundtable and then they go away and write their stories or maybe interview us further after. As you may be aware, at the start of this year in Hong Kong, we had our you know, first real serious wave of covid um, and the place was really shut down for, for two or three months. So we couldn't really get the in-person. That was Alvarez and Marcel Managing Director Keith Williamson and Henry Chambers visit with me about the recently released A&M report, Threatscape. We take a look at three prescient predictions around threats for 2022 and beyond. And our corruption, AML, and data protection, data privacy. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I am thrilled to have with me Keith Williamson and Henry Chambers from Alvarez and Marcel. Uh, We are here to talk about a report the firm issued a little bit earlier in the spring called Threatscape. I found it had some really interesting insights, certainly applicable at the time it was issued, but perhaps even more prescient now as we move forward into the end of Q2 and when this podcast posts in Q3. So, gentlemen, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. No, you're welcome, Tom. So I'm going to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about your professional backgrounds and your current roles. I've known Keith a very long time. So I'm going to start with him. Keith? No, thanks, Tom. Um, Yes, I'm a a forensic accountant by training. So well, trained as an auditor, moved into forensic accounting on qualifying, and I've spent most of my career of over 25 years uh, performing investigations of fraud, corruption, and regulatory issues, um, and also advising companies on how they can remediate those issues through um, compliance measures. Um, I'm currently, I've just moved back to uh, the UK, having been in Hong Kong for the last nine years. Um, I still head up the disputes and investigations practice there, um, and will continue to do for the foreseeable future, but basing myself uh, from the UK. Yeah, very similar to Keith. Uh, I'm a chartered accountant by background and I've spent all of my career actually practicing in forensics. Similarly, I focus on fraud, corruption, employee malfeasance type investigations. And more recently, I've been focusing on cryptocurrency matters, dealing with compliance issues in cryptocurrency, disputes, and closest to my heart, investigations, and how we can go about tracing when when the median of fraud or corruption is, is via crypto. So that's me. Where are you based, Henry? I'm based in Hong Kong. So I've been here for uh, eight years or so. Just got my permanent residency. And for, prior to that, I was uh, in London and trained actually under Keith as well. 
So gentlemen, could you tell us either what was the genesis of Threatscape or why you decided to release the report when you did, and then we'll take a deep dive into each of the threats you assess, but why Threatscape and why Q1 and Q2 2022? We normally do a media roundtable around the start of the year in Asia where we put out our predictions um, for the forthcoming year around you know, forensic issues, be it fraud, corruption, e-discovery, disputes. And we've historically done that in person to a, a media roundtable, and then they go away and write their stories or maybe interview us further after. As you may be aware, at the start of this year in Hong Kong, we had our you know, first real serious wave of COVID, um, and the place was really shut down for, for two or three months. So we couldn't really get the in-person uh, profile for the the type of media event we normally have, so we thought we need to get something out there to to keep people informed of what we're thinking for this year. So we drafted this Threatscape document, released it through the media and various channels, um, really to get out there what our thoughts were for this year and, and get some discussion around those issues. Keith, let me just follow up on that with uh, what you've identified in the th- Threatscape as Threat One, and as recently as this morning, I was listening to a podcast about anti-corruption, anti-bribery investigations, but why do you see a potential increase coming out of COVID? And then what effects is COVID still having on the work you and your team do? Yeah, firstly, in terms of the work we do on the corruption side in Asia, a lot of it is driven by the US DOJ and and SEC. So that's a large driver behind our thoughts in terms of seeing an uptick in investigations in this area. And a lot of that is firstly driven by the renewed approach from the Biden administration announced towards the end of last year in terms of having more of a focus on corruption again um, and trying to deal with it because of the societal issues, the poverty issues that are generated from that. There's clearly a renewed focus from the US authorities um, to tackle this again. Coupled with that, during the course of last year, I think the SEC saw a a 25% increase in whistleblowing um, reports for FCP and FCPA offences as well. So there's clearly a lot more going on or a lot more awareness of the opportunity to report these types of issues. And and then post-COVID, I think what we've seen is COVID still ongoing in Asia, but post-COVID around the rest of the world, I think what we've seen is one, the DOJ and the SEC back to being better resourced, getting through their backlog. And um, there's going to be inevitably a lot of cases that have arisen during the last couple of years that have not been tackled yet by those authorities and also issues that are not being tackled by companies during this period, either because they've not had the resources to send internal audit on the ground to do reviews of their international operation or just because they've identified issues, but they've had other crises to deal with, keeping the companies alive and just dealing with those issues um, rather than tackling sensitive topics like corruption. So we're expected to just see a much bigger uptick because of primarily renewed enforcement from the US, but also companies paying a lot more attention to these issues and and having more of a focus on it. Keith, we've had a couple of major FCPA enforcement actions in the United States already in 2022. Both of those or several of those have included international components. And I wanted to broaden out from simply US-centric FCPA and Department of Justice to other countries who may be assisting. Are you seeing that in Asia Pacific or in other areas of the world? Yeah, we tend to be a stage removed from the local authorities on these cases and that we're always working with legal counsel who tend to have those interactions. So we don't always get to see what exactly is going on with those authorities and what cooperation there is. However, clearly the Chinese authorities, and as we're going to talk about perhaps a bit later on this, 
the Chinese authorities are paying more and more attention to any foreign legal enforcement authority or regulator that wants to have access to businesses in its jurisdiction, either for data or documentation that are relevant to corruption investigations. So, so clearly there, there are conversations going on with the Chinese authorities between our legal counsel and them, normally to facilitate removal of documentation from China and sharing it with foreign bodies. But also on some of the international cases we've done, there are other countries involved. And where we have seen there is definitely liaison between the authorities is where there are blocking statutes. So similar to the issues in China, there are obviously blocking statutes in other countries, and particularly you know, places like Switzerland, where we see communications between the lawyers and the various authorities to try and get information released into the US jurisdiction. Keith, last October, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, Lisa Monaco, made a major policy announcement which reinstituted the Yates Memorandum focused or purported to, to focus uh, both Department of Justice inquiry on individuals in anti-corruption investigations. We have seen some of that in 2022. So I was originally going to ask you how that would impact an FCPA violation, but last week I was contacted by someone who asks basically the same inquiry from a UK serious fraud office perspective. So I wanted to maybe wrap all of that in. Do you, how does the Monaco doctrine or the the Monaco uh, speech rather really impact the work that you and your team do? Yeah, as I alluded to earlier, we we normally get directed by counsel on these investigations and and it's clear that their focus on some of these investigations is has shifted from being purely a fact-gathering exercise to understand what has happened and the evidence that backs that up to going further and and trying to find out exactly who was involved at each stage of the transactions in question. They're really wanting to know chapter and verse in terms of who initiated the transaction, who approved it, who paid it. And that's from a financial document standpoint. And then from an email and other documentary correspondence standpoint, who was copied on these things, who's got awareness of these issues. Whereas it was previously a lot about just understanding the corporate wrong and getting the evidence around that. Now it's a lot more about all the individuals that might have been involved in the process. How far up the chain does that go and what evidence of their knowledge and involvement is there? So it's extended the role of of our work on those investigations to establish a lot of information like that as well. Keith, you alluded to investigations in China and some of the challenges you and your team have faced, but I wanted to maybe ask you specifically, what are the key challenges that you and other Western companies you might be trying to do investigations in China face going forward? Yeah, first and foremost, it's obtaining access to data and documentation. That can be the the biggest challenge, partly because of the rules in place, particularly in terms of data transfer outside of China. So if we wanted to provide something to U.S. counsel and ultimately to U.S. regulators, there are challenges there. But even just in terms of accessing in the first place the data and documentation, companies can be very resistant to providing us with that access, particularly if they've got some sort of government ownership locally as well. And these companies are very hierarchical. People are very scared to make decisions themselves. So those sort of decisions need to be made by the highest authorities in these businesses and they can be very difficult to get time with and, and to make decisions. So just starting an investigation can, can have those sort of challenges. And then when you're actually performing investigations, that there are all manner of issues that can make the investigation more difficult. And this is not just true of China, but several countries around the region. And collusion is very prevalent. You know, often you need collusion to get around the financial internal controls to be able to pay a bribe or offer some other sort of advantage. 
collusion is a lot more societal, I'd say, here. And it's easier to build relationships with third-party customers, suppliers, banks, etc., that can collude with you in perpetrating a fraud or a, a corrupt transaction. And often that sort of interaction is off books and records. It can be very difficult to, to identify. And also there's, there's quite widespread fabrication um, of documentation and, and very convincing fabrication of documentation that we face as well. So testing the authenticity of the data and documentation that we do receive can be very challenging. And we often see situations where there are second or third sets of accounting books and records that are used for management purposes, tax purposes, and for concealing illicit activity as well. And really establishing exactly what's going on can, can be one of the biggest challenges there is there. How does this increased enforcement around out of bribery and corruption, or at least increased investigations, impact mergers and acquisitions in your practice, Keith? Yeah, what we've seen so far, and particularly from private equity firms, is more of a focus on performing pre and post acquisition forensic due diligence. So going beyond typical financial due diligence or even just a straightforward legal forensic due diligence. So we have been called into situations where post-acquisition they wanted to do a deeper dive and ascertain whether there have been any historical issues of corruption that they need to deal with in the first 100 days or 200 days of their ownership. And we're seeing more issues like that even pre-acquisition as well, partly because of COVID and the inability, particularly in China, to get in there and build the sort of relationships and trust that you would do before doing an M&A deal in China. So we're doing more background research into individuals and entities on behalf of our clients where we can get the access doing some more forensic accounting type due diligence as well um, to understand exactly what's going on there. Because as I say, historically, a lot of buyers would take trust in the owners of these businesses that they build up relationships with over a period of time. When they've not been able to do that in person, that they've had to rely on providers like ourselves to, to do a deeper dive for them. Henry, I'd like to turn to you now for threat two. I'm not quite sure how to introduce cryptocurrency because it is near the top of a lot of people's minds right now. And when this report was released, I don't know if you anticipated this, but we're where we are. But I want to maybe take a step back and ask you to maybe enlighten us on what are digital assets and more importantly, what is digital asset fraud? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Digital assets are are at the forefront of people's minds. To take a broad view, digital assets are any digital representation of value that can be digitally traded, transferred, or or used for payment. And as it relates to fraud, necessarily where there is value, the fraudsters are sure to follow. So when we're thinking about what digital digital asset fraud is, we can think about it in, in a few separate areas whether that's digital fraud that is dealing with legitimate digital assets, or some of the ones you might have heard of, Bitcoin or Ethereum, so people are are stealing those um, or otherwise obtaining those digital assets by stealing people's private keys or or access to their wallet. Uh, And that mainstream part of the the cryptocurrency world is somewhat uh, infiltrated by the fraudsters. We can think about it in another way, in potential other fraudulent schemes whereby funds are raised for assets that are otherwise don't, or don't really exist or are Ponzi schemes. Big ones relate like Squid Game Coin or other altcoins are some that have happened recently. And thirdly, any ransom or cyber attacks that, that relate to crypto. One of the, the big ways in which ransomware is discharged is the use of Bitcoin to extract that ransom money. And it can be particularly attractive to fraudsters due to the perceived 
anonymity uh, and complexity of cryptocurrency and the feeling of safety that fraudsters can get when they're directly transacting in cryptocurrency. A recent study from the US uh, Federal Trade Commission found that over a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency was stolen from US consumers even just during 2021. And so that's an astronomical to be related just to uh, consumer type frauds. Uh, Many of these have stemmed from phony investment opportunities, either pushed via social media, WhatsApp or, or, or LinkedIn. So the necessary kind of question we ask then is when we're dealing with with that kind of fraud, well, how do we investigate that? Or what do we do to combat that? Because that's a, it's a big issue, and it's a big issue for the people acting in this world. One of the one of the great things about cryptocurrency, is, as you may know, and some of your listeners may know, is that that oftentimes is recorded on the public blockchain. So we can undertake transaction tracing exercises to try and either one, identify the location uh, of stolen assets, or two, identify the individuals who, who have perpetrated the particular fraud. So when we looked at the threatscape and what was out there through 2020-22, the kind of adoption, the mainstream adoption of digital and crypto assets necessarily meant there's going to be a, a bigger piece of pie for those fraudsters to get hold of. So although the U.S. has not released regulations around cryptocurrency as of the date of this recording. What are the roles of other key countries in this space that you and your team are working with? Yeah, sure. It's a really good question because I think a lot of regulators are grappling uh, to try and get their arms around how do we deal with this emerging asset class. There are some regulations that are trying to be adapted in the U.S. to fit digital assets uh, with inside the kind of prevailing rules. But quite frankly, regulators are struggling to catch up, I think, with this rapidly uh, developing area of technology. In, in a recent discussion, uh, Ashley Alder, who's the, the chair of the International Organization of Securities Commission, um, I think quite rightly said, you know, to be able to combat issues within the cryptocurrency and digital asset space, we're going to need a globally joined up approach. Because at the moment, there is no consistent approach across the regulators throughout the world. And without a globally consistent approach, you're going to find yourself in a position with regulatory arbitrage, where those individuals or entities or in companies who want to act in more nefarious or less compliant ways will move to jurisdictions uh, where the rules are more lax. And so in terms of then the question, or well, what is the role of other countries? I think we want to make sure that we have a globally standardized or at least close to standardized as we possibly can approach to regulate. And then a mature and effective regulatory environment is good for a number of reasons. Uh, and are good for global uh, crypto adoption. Now, the reason being is it gives certainty to the actual participants in the industry, the funds, the exchanges, the investors. It gives safety to those who are actually participating and investing in digital assets. And it actually then deters the bad actors and pushes out a lot of the activity that we would necessarily look for as, uh, as forensic accountants and investigators. The Ukraine war, or rather the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has been described as the first digital asset war. Is that an assessment that you find is valid, or is it something else going on? Yeah, again, it's, it's, I think it's the first time that we've really seen digital assets play quite a major role on both sides of this particular conflict. From the Russian side, obviously, there's been a significant amount of sanctions placed on individuals and companies from that particular country. And so then what we've seen is well, people trying to avoid 
those sanctions? And how do they then access the financial system when they can no longer transact in US dollars um, or transact with you know, other US entities? And that there was speculation that maybe Russian sanctioned individuals and entities would use cryptocurrency in order to circumvent those controls. What we saw, though, actually wasn't that wasn't necessarily the case. And whilst it might have happened in small amounts, broadly, the infrastructure is not there for that to be the wholesale movement or the wholesale movement away from the traditional uh, financial economy through, through to crypto. But it's certainly an option for those you know, uh, people on the fringes to be able to evade those types of sanctions. And then looking at the Ukraine side, they have received an astronomical sum in donations uh, via cryptocurrency, which is for that side of of the conflict is particularly good because they've been able to do that incredibly quickly. I think they've received 135 million US dollars worth of donations in crypto as at the time of the donation to the uh, the wallet addresses that they had published. They're currently looking to mint NFTs to preserve some of the heritage that is currently being destroyed by by rockets and and shelling on on the ground. And so any of the kind of paintings or sculptures or culturally significant artifacts are now being digitally represented and on the blockchain. So therefore, that's a a preservation of of that Ukrainian heritage. And most recently, even just last week, they have sold a CryptoPunk NFT for what was about 100,000 US dollars at the time, 90E. Again, that was donated to that wallet. So what we're seeing is, again, evidence that there was a fast flow of uh, financial support to you in the wake of, of the conflict. And this is the first time that's ever been seen, I think, in, in terms of a conflict. In addition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its impact around crypto, we've had uh, a fairly dramatic economic dislocation over the past even two or three weeks. And I wanted to maybe ask, how has this economic downturn impacted either your team's work or perhaps the questions you are getting from clients or advice you're giving at this point? Yes, I think that the tone of what we've been been asked in recent weeks has certainly changed. I think we've seen across all risk assets, equities, and in the crypto space, some faltering in the face of economic headwinds. And that is self-evident. We're starting to see what I think is a lot of stress in those crypto markets and certain crypto enterprises, exchanges, or lending protocols have started to find themselves in liquidity crises. So the other parts of our business in our restructuring insolvency practice have started to see participants in the industry come up to them saying, how are we going to deal with lots of creditors asking when we've got a margin call as a result of all of the fall in the price of certain assets? Uh, and how can we otherwise manage our, our balance sheets such that we don't find ourselves in significant distress? Um, now, as it relates to, I think, the, the world that I exist in, in the forensic world, let's say we see some of these entities or exchanges go bust. So they're no longer able to service their debt. There's going to be a great number of stakeholders who want to understand well, what exactly has gone on. What happened to my tokens after I deposited them in this particular exchange? And that's where we would come in uh, and say, let's unpick all of this, follow the records in the public blockchain, as well as look at the other records within the business and say, well, this is the story of how we got from part A, when you know, only three or four weeks ago, we were you know, going to the moon as it were, in, in the crypto world to quite the opposite in the recent few weeks. So what are some of the key controls and screening tools for digital assets that you and your team recommend companies put in place if they're going to move into this realm? 
Yeah, sure. It, it's going to sound quite cliche, but the reason it's cliche for a reason is because it works. The Know Your Client and AML, anti-money laundering, CTF controls that you would typically try and put in, in a traditional financial institution are just as important in, in the crypto world. And in fact, it can be even easier to do so in the crypto world because you've got such transparency around the, the provenance of the particular tokens that have flowed into your wallet. So we would be making sure that the AML, CTF, KYC type procedures and controls you have in place are sufficiently robust, that you are catching any sanctioned individuals or tainted funds that have come from some of the dark web marketplaces. And we'd be saying to, to our clients, well, listen, have you got any of the key forensic tools in place or the key blockchain monitoring tools, big names in the market that are doing this kind of wallet screening before they uh, they reach the wallets of your particular entity? Without those kind of things in place, the, uh, the exchange is going to be flying blind. And sometimes some exchanges are going to be willfully flying blind. Not every Everybody in the industry is a good actor. Those who want to be compliant will be engaging those types of forensic tools um, and, and screening, uh, as well as uh, engaging with external consultants to make sure that the soft policies and procedures are in place and that the staff are all dealing in the correct way and the internal controls outside of just the blockchain tools are functioning effectively. Um, that alongside education, one of the big issues in the industry is not a lot of people have a really true understanding of what they're doing. They like to put their money in and the money goes up and like, that was great, what a good investment. But I'd like to think that the exchanges have a duty of care somewhat to their customers to so say, actually, the value of your investment as well as debt go down as well as up, as you would see in any traditional asset class. And so that education, I think, is a really important part um, of discharging their duty to the participants in the industry. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more on Threatscape. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, that's really interesting that you phrase that as it's going to sound cliche, because before you said that, my observation was that the skills needed to advise in this area, I heard you articulate for exactly what you do as a forensic account and a forensic investigator. And it's just another asset class and you have the tools in place and we have the tools in place to not only assess those risks, but manage those risks as well. Would, would all of that be a, a fair assessment without sounding cliche? Yeah, I think you're right, Tom. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of the skill set is exactly the same. We're looking for movement of tokens from one wallet to the next. And in many senses, it makes our job easier. And normally, the kind of work we'll be doing is having to get subpoenas for bank statements, and we have to get all of the records, and that can be a hellishly long task. Now, all of that is directly... The biggest challenge for us as investigators is trying to associate individuals' wallet addresses. So whilst we can see wallet addresses and the movement of funds and the balance of funds in particular wallets... What we can't do from a third party, just uh, we can't pull that information up without additional investigation, is who they are beneficially owned by. And we do employ some techniques to try and identify that, but that's where the challenge lies. But what you say is exactly right. The rest of it, uh, if anything, is easier to be a forensic accountant with this type of technology than otherwise would be without this kind of blockchain technology. 
Keith, let me turn back to you. You alluded to several times in your remarks around the threat from anti-bribery, anti-corruption about privacy issues and specifically privacy issues in China. I'd like to maybe pick up on that and take a little bit deeper dive into a new Chinese legislation rather entitled Personal Information Protection Law and explore that. How does that concept relate or work together with the Chinese state secrets and data security laws, and how does it impact you and your team? Yeah, so just taking back to the state secrecy law, that's what we've had to deal with for many years um, here in China. And and those laws, they're relatively ambiguous, vaguely worded, but what is required is on any investigation that we perform, um, if we're going to submit data and documentation outside of China, an international legal counsel will normally appoint a Chinese law firm to perform a state secret review. And that's where they'll review the pertinent documents that you're looking to disclose to US regulators, law enforcement, or even just US counsel. And before they actually leave the borders of China, they'll have gone through this state secret review to ensure that there are no sensitive documents being transmitted across border. So that's what's always happened. So investigations always had this loop in them for the past, as long as I've been in Asia this time around, so nine years, we've always needed to do that. What's changed now with the personal um, information protection law and the data security law that comes under that is that the the PIPL in the first place is just like the GDPR in in Europe. It's just governing, handling personal data, how you, you know, process it, how you store it and secure it, etc. So there's nothing controversial in that. But the data security law, which comes under this umbrella as well, deals with transmission of data across borders and where it's across borders and involves a foreign legal judiciary authority or a law enforcement agency, no matter what the nature of that data and documentation is. So it doesn't need to be state secret related. It could be anything completely benign, and that needs to go through a central authority in China and be reviewed and approved before it can be transmitted out to U.S. counsel or the U.S. court or the law enforcement authority. And and that's, we're still in the very early stages of dealing with this law in terms of it having only come in late last year, but that is causing significant delays to the conclusion of investigations because there is this process to go through and it's not a very clear process at the present that's been tried and tested many times and also it can be used by clients that we're looking to review their information they're very uncertain about the application of this law they're very concerned about any possible breach of it so when i alluded to earlier challenges about getting access to data and documentation this is just another stumbling block in the road that we have to get over in order to get access to data and documentation because often clients need convincing that we've got all adequate security in place, policies and procedures in place. We're not going to disclose this documentation and data outside the borders of China until and if we get the necessary approvals to do so. So we have to give the clients first and foremost that comfort before they provide it to us. You've talked about getting access to the data. You've now gotten access. How do you get the information or even your work product slash thought process out of the country. Yeah, even for for me or Henry sat in Hong Kong and conducted an investigation in China, under this new data security law, we can only be provided with minimal information um, on that investigation as it's ongoing. 
So while historically, provided there were no state secret issues, we could have been provided with you know copies of, of relevant um, accounting documentation and data, etc., analyze that from Hong Kong um, or anywhere else around the world, and then fed it back into the, the China team to help them conduct their work. And um, at the moment, we can't do that because because of these laws, we can we have to perform the work in China, have it all reviewed in China, and only share minimal information outside China until this process has been navigated, whereby the local authorities give approval. Now, again, we don't do that ourselves. It's it's the legal counsel that we work with. The Chinese legal counsel that they engage will go through that process. Now, we haven't had much visibility on the investigation side to that process and, and how successful it is at present. But our colleagues on our forensic technology side who are dealing with data volumes, you know, trillions of emails a, a day and, and having to you know, seek approvals through their legal counsel to transmit documents to the US or to Europe for litigation cases, they're finding that they can get through this process. So it's not an unviable process. It's just one that takes time um, and experience and knowledge and, and the right assistance to, to navigate. So you've talked about how uh, this has impacted uh, your work, your team's work in China. What are some of the key components of a compliance program around here? And I'll even throw in, you alluded to GDPR as perhaps a guidepost that we could use to think through. Is it the a same type of risk assessment or data protection information assessment type process and then managing the risks that come up in that process? Yeah, I think from a from a pure data protection standpoint, it, it is the PIPL has been modelled on the GDPR, and and very much if you have processes and policies in place that meet the standards of that, you're going to largely meet the standards of the PIPL, as as I understand it. Obviously, not being a lawyer to to advise on that. However, where that where the the tweak is obviously making organisations aware of the issue if they are involved in cross border litigation and cross-border investigation, it, it goes way beyond the concerns that you might have under GDPR-type um, situations. You, you've really got to make sure um, nothing is leaving the borders of China until it's got this approval and gone through this process. You need to have additional belts and braces around those policies and procedures to make sure these things are, are picked up as well and that nobody's just been contacted out of the blue in the finance department. Perhaps it's the finance department in the European headquarters says, please share this information. We've got a regulator that's asking for it. And they just send it across. They're going to be in breach straight away, but with very serious consequences potentially for the organisation involved. So yeah, it it really needs a lot of education throughout the organisation and more than just some top-level management of how they're looking after their data and processing it. Gentlemen, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but before we leave, I have one observation and then a question. My observation is we've been trying to schedule this podcast for some time. What I found most interesting about Threatscape Report is the topics you raised literally two months ago are still on the forefront, and many of the ideas you put forward we're still talking about today, literally in today's news. So kudos for the report. Kudos for having the prescient insights to to give us and that we can continue this discussion literally throughout the year using Threatscape as a framework for thinking through several of these issues. Now, the question is, if someone wanted, a listener wanted more information on Alvarez Marcel or the Threatscape report, where would you suggest the best place for them to go? And we'll, of course, put that information in the show notes as well. Yeah, certainly. I think from my perspective, and Henry can share other sources, but obviously the website has links to the the Threatscape report and and some media announcements on that. 
our own LinkedIn pages have more details as well. and there are various you know publications that um, Threatscape has been quoted in, particularly in the Asia region. Um, but we can provide a bunch of those links to you. I don't know if Henry on the crypto side, there's I know you've been widely published as well. Yeah, I was going to just reiterate, LinkedIn is, is a great space to, to hear our updated thoughts. We try to keep our, our commentary as fresh and relevant as possible through the LinkedIn platform. And that's a, a good place to, to look for our, our kind of our ongoing and updated thoughts. Gentlemen, this uh, has been a lot of fun for me. I judge a podcast on two criteria. Number one, how much did I learn? And two, number two, how much fun did I have? And you scored 10 on both. So I hope that the next time around we can uh, talk about this and maybe continue this conversation. No, fantastic. Thank you for inviting us, Tom. Likewise. Thank you very much, Tom. It was very enjoyable from our side too. This is Tom Fox. I've linked to the Alvarez and Marcel Threatscape report in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. I think you'll find it useful as you move into Q3 and even Q4 2022. I'd also like to tell you about a great new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files where with Hughes Hubbard partner, Mike DeBernardis, we take a look at some of the key FCPA enforcement actions over the past 15 years or so, what lessons can be drawn with them around FCPA enforcement, and more importantly, what the compliance professional can learn from them. Check out The Corruption Files on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.